All right, so this evening we come to the close of our series in the book of 1 Samuel, and we titled this series two years ago when we started in the fall season, The Rise of the King. Now, when we started 1 Samuel, we saw how the tiny nation of Israel had entered the land promised to them by God to Moses when they were escaping slavery in Egypt. But because the Israelites were unfaithful as they entered this new land and disobedient, they were constantly at war with the surrounding nations, constantly like not at rest, not at peace. Israel was less and less the people of God and more and more a loose confederation of tribes and chieftains. And at the end of the book of Judges, which is kind of the last narrative account of this saga before 1 Samuel, we hear these haunting words. Now Israel had no king, and each one did as they saw fit. It doesn't say this, but you could say that's a recipe for disaster, all right? Each one did as they saw fit. With the book of First Samuel, though, we see the graciousness of God on display. Because he had made a promise to Moses and a covenant with Israel, he was going to show them, I love you, I am committed to you, even though you are a bunch of rebellious fill-in-blanks, okay? Um, You are bent on idolatry and self-destruction, but I made a promise, I made a covenant, and I am going to keep it even if you won't. So through a miracle, God allowed this woman, Hannah, who had been barren, to become pregnant, and she bore a son, and that son is Samuel, the namesake of this book. And he would become this faithful prophet, and through him and and the leadership of God, he would begin to reform Israel and prepare the way for a godly king to be raised up among them. You know, this king was supposed to do two things in particular. The first thing the king was supposed to do was have a quiet time, no, you're supposed to read the, the, the Bible, you're supposed to read the Torah, so that the king could lead the people of God into reforming their lives around Yahweh worship, around being faithful to, to God and his covenant. That was the first job of the king. The second job of the king, very important also, was to protect the people from invading armies like the Philistines and the Amalekites and, and all of these people who were trying to uh, take the land from Israel. This first king was Saul, the son of Kish, this guy from this tiny tribe of Benjamin. He was shy and and, and kind of cowardly and the reluctant leader, and all things look like he is going to be a great king because he wasn't, you know, power-hungry, grabbing for for all the power and authority. But he's crippled by his fears over his his reign as king, and, and time and time again, he's disobedient and rebellious, and finally, Through the prophet Samuel, God says, Saul, your time is done, and I'm ripping the kingdom from your hand, and I'm going to give it to your neighbor, to another. And that other is David. David is the youngest son of eight brothers, and by the time Samuel comes to him, he's just a teenage shepherd boy. In that culture, if you are, you know, the first three sons in a family, you might get some good inheritance and some responsibility. The fourth son, not really. The fifth son, you better become, I don't know, like a musician, an artist, or something like that. And then... By the end, you just, I don't know, you're not going to get a good wife and all of these crazy things. So David is a nobody in the social scale of the ancient Near East. But even though he comes from these humble beginnings, God caused him to prosper wherever he went. He goes up against this Philistine giant, and, and God helps him slay Goliath, right? And, and then King Saul is tormented by these evil spirits, and God enables David to heal him through the playing of music. 
And even when Saul is trying to kill David, God enables him to succeed wherever he goes. But as we come to the close of 1 Samuel, it's getting so bad that David fears for his life that he actually goes to live in the land of the Philistines. Now, if you've been following this series, who is Israel's number one enemy at this time? The Philistines. So David, the future king of Israel, the one anointed by God, goes to live with the Philistines. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, and it gets even more interesting. So David goes to this guy, King Achish of the, of the Philistines, one of the Philistine kings, and he says, hey, um, Saul's after me, and I've had it, and I'm just going to be with you guys now, okay? And he's like, okay, I guess. And, and David's like, I don't want to like rain on your parade. Could you give me some place to live in your land? And King Achish says, I- I'm going to give you Ziklag. Which, by the way, Ziklag was this city that was supposed to be part of Israel that Saul had never taken back. And so David, even though he's pretending to be a Philistine, gets this city back for Israel. Anyway, it's just wheels within wheels. So, so David is now pretending to be a Philistine, and he tells uh, the Philistine kings, hey, I'm going to go... Um, I'm going to go fight some of your enemies for you. And, and they're like, great, this guy David really is a traitor to Israel. He's one of us. And so David chooses these enemies to fight, the enemies of the Philistines, that just also happen to be the enemies of Israel. And so David is super crafty, isn't he? Because he's got a free place to stay in the Philistines. He, the Philistines think he's on their side, but he's really doing the work of Israel. Now, there comes a point where other Philistine kings doubt David's loyalty, and they are wise to do so. (laughs) And so they send him packing. He's about ready to go out to war with them, and they say, we don't want this guy around. Isn't he the guy that killed Goliath? Isn't he the guy they sing the songs about, Saul with his thousands, and David with his ten thousands? No, we don't want him there. So David and his 600 warriors begin the long trek back to Ziklag, their hometown. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. We're in 1 Samuel 30. I'm going to walk us through it section by section, and we're going to start with the first six verses. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women who were in it, both young and old, They killed none of them, but carried them away as they went on their way. And when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because his sons and daughters were taken. But David found strength in the Lord, his God. Oh yeah, there's more. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered, You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Things have gone from bad to worse. It's one thing to be rejected socially um, 
emotionally, right? And that is a very real pain that is nothing to be taken lightly. But after rejection and a 55-mile hike back to your hometown of Ziklag, that's how far they went, David and his men, tired, exhausted in every physical, emotional way you could imagine, then find their town burnt to the ground, their families taken, all of their possessions taken. Weariness, grief, uncertainty, and loss, all of these physical and emotional factors have weighed upon the men to the point that they look to David for his, as a scapegoat. And that is the curse of leadership, isn't it? When things are going well, people want to exalt, you know, David's the greatest king, but when they don't go well, people want to place their fears and anxieties on that leader. And so there's murmurs in the camp of wanting to stone David. And not only is David in danger, but his own soul is crushed. Like sometimes we just read these stories, or at least I do, and they're old and they're Bible stories and we're supposed to get stuff out of it. But like David is a real dude who had a real family, who had real possessions and real hopes and dreams, and he just came back to where his place is burned down and his family is gone. Imagine his pain and despair. Imagine that he's probably thinking, could this be the end of the dream? Had God finally forsaken him after getting him out of so many different jams? Had it been a mistake to go to the Philistines in the first place? But in this moment, David does something I'm not sure I would have the strength to do. He doesn't remain passive in the situation. You know, it was God who called him into this mess, God who plucked him as the eighth son of this know-nothing family. It was God who anointed him as king, and dang it, God, you got me into this, and I'm going to trust you to get me out. That's what David does, and, and so he, he trusts in him. It's to God that David turns, and unlike Saul, who killed the priests back in chapter 22, unlike Saul, who in chapter 28, when he gets in a jam, consults a medium, like turns to the occult, David finds guidance and encouragement in the Lord. It's no wonder that later he's going to compose words in the Psalms. One of them is the line, if God is for me, who can be against me? This I know, God is for me. What can man do to me? Now, as I have been hinting at, now more than hinting, I've been pretty heavy-handed at saying that throughout this series, David is not God's final answer for the salvation of Israel or the human kind. As we have seen and will see in later stories, David is just as susceptible to corruption as, as any other man or woman. He makes some horrible choices that will later damage not only him and his family, but thousands and thousands of people. But David, in his best moments, points to an even greater king, who is, of course, Jesus the Christ. When David is rejected and his men turn on him, he seeks, to, he seeks God for strength and guidance. And in a similar way, we can think of Jesus who was rejected by the powerful of Israel, betrayed by his own, and on the night he was arrested uh, and to be crucified, he's on his knees in a garden praying to his father, being strengthened by the messengers of God, the angels. Let's pick up the story now in verse 9. David and the 600 men came to the Besor Valley 
where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites and some territory belonging to Judah in the Negev of Caleb. Oh, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I'll take you down to them. So in the last section, we kind of saw how David, his attitude, how his turning to God uh, mimics or points to this greater King Jesus who would do the same thing. Uh, This section of the story also has resonance with the character of Jesus. In it, we see David and his 600 men in pursuit of those who raided their town. They lose 200 men on the way to exhaustion, and eventually they come upon this Egyptian guy who's just collapsed and left for dead by his master. Okay, quiz. When God worked through Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery, who were they enslaved by? And, okay, how do you think that they might feel about Egyptian people? Not good. Not good. Yes, there's a, uh, a lot of hatred toward the Egyptians uh, at this time in especially uh, extra-biblical writings like we see lots of smear campaigns, shall I say. Uh, now, consider that this man was not only an Egyptian by birth, but he was also a slave of an Amalekite who had just taken David's family, burned his town, and the taken all the the wives and livestock and everything of these 400 angry, angry warrior guys. When the Israelites were escaping from Egypt back in the Exodus, they had to get to the promised land, and they had to pass through some territories. And one of those territories was the territory that the Amalekites had. And they said, hey, Amalekites, guess what? Like, Yahweh, our God, just delivered us from Egypt, and we just want to get over there, but we got to pass through here. And we promise... We won't even pick a grape off a plant. We won't even stop for water. Can we just go that way? And the Amalekites said, no, we're not doing it. And so back then, back in Exodus, there's like this curse on the Amalekites that this isn't going to happen. So this guy that they find washed up, 400 angry people about ready to, uh, to get their stuff back, find an Egyptian who was an Amalekite slave who had just participated in the raiding party that that did all the damage to them, okay? So now David and his angry, hurt, tired men, wouldn't you think like if this was a Hollywood movie that uh, they would have every right to take vengeance on him? I mean, this is like the whole John Wick trilogy, right? Like, revenge, right? Or they could torture him for information like any good spy movie or maybe not so good. I'm being facetious. But like, isn't that what we do to people when we find someone from the bad guys and they've got information about where we can get our stuff back? Don't we just like turn the screws and get the information? They could treat him like a prisoner of war. But instead, David 
shows this man hospitality. And I'm not just talking about like bread and water. He gives him food. The Hebrew there is for like a meal. He gives them a meal. He gives him something to drink. And he even gives him dessert, <laughs> the, the raisin cakes and the figs. I mean, it adds that detail in the story. While many would see this Egyptian as an enemy worthy of death, David sees a sojourner in a foreign land, a slave of an oppressor, and more importantly, he sees a human being. Now, David knows a thing or two about being an outsider. He comes from the line of Jesse, which has in that line Ruth, who is a Moabitess. By the way, there is another place that the Israelites had to pass through in the Exodus that wouldn't let them through. It was the Moabites. So this, David's got Moabite in his blood. The youngest of eight, as we've talked about, basically nothing in the ancient world. And he's a political outcast. Nobody hanging out with David was doing that because it was advantageous. You hang out with David and the king and the empire are automatically against you. And maybe that's why David attracted the sorts of people that he did. The 600 men following him were a mixture of riffraff who had outstanding debts to the empire, people who were wanted by the law for misdemeanors. As the the future king of Israel, David had gathered foreigners from all sorts of ethnicities, cultures, nation states, all who had seen God at work in and through David. They had seen him overcome incredible odds and defeat a giant They'd seen God working with him, and it attracted them to him. And in a similar but more intense way, Jesus is the kind of king who has compassion on the outsider. Of all the people of God, uh, okay, so the God of the universe decides to become incarnate. I know this is so Advent, but let me just say it on Christ the King. He decides to become incarnate, and God being God could say like, hmm, who should I be born to, Right? He chooses on purpose an unwed couple from Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph. Mixed into the genealogy of this couple were people like Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabitess and Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite whom David took advantage of and had her husband killed. These stains in the genealogy of someone who was trying to rise to power because of pride, this is part of Jesus' story. Jesus experienced rejection, but he also reached out to those who society kept pushing away. People like women and children in the first century, lepers and the diseased, tax collectors, and even stuffy religious leaders who thought they knew everything. Jesus still reached out to them too. And we live in a world where our top leaders favor the powerful over the weak. We live in a world that encourages through not only our media, but through the actions of of our culture, uh, encourages revenge and spite and payback. How the world needs a king like Jesus, amen? How the world needs a king like Jesus who's known in the scriptures as the friend of sinners and savior of the humble. That's the kind of king that we not only need, but part of the good news and why I'm preaching it is because that's the king that we have. That's who Jesus is. For those of us who have received the love of Jesus, 
for those of you who today have found him to be a gracious and forgiving king, it's time to check our attitude. It's time for me to check my attitude toward those people that we disagree with. If we receive grace from Jesus after sinning against him over and over, how are we, how am I extending that grace over and over toward other people? I think that's a, that's a question. That's a duality that, that Jesus' followers live in, is receiving grace, because I need to get reminded of that, but also extending it, and I need to wrestle with that. Okay. Verse 16. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling, because of the great amount of plunder which they had taken to the land of the Philistines from, and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day, and none of them got away except for 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. And David and his, as David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and the troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his own wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands this raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down with us to battle. All will share alike. David made this statute and ordinance for Israel from this day, or from that day until this. So this Egyptian slave of an, of an Amalekite leads David to the men where the Amalekites are having this major party. Many revels, right? Like, I just think Thor in, uh, you know, like, I don't know, just, he's reveling with many revels, and the beer's flowing, and these guys are tipsy, and David's total force at this time, as they're coming upon this raiding party, is only 400 men, okay? And not only that, but they've got to be exhausted. 200 of them already dropped off from exhaustion. They traveled 55 miles, and then when they caught up with the Egyptian and finally got to where these guys were hiding, if you look at the map, it's about 15 more miles, and one gets the sense that there's supernatural things at work here, right? Like Yahweh has totally intervened and given the Amalekites to David. I mean, he only comes with 400 tired guys. And if they fought from the dusk until the next day and slaughtered a whole bunch of people and, and, and 400 guys escaped, like how many people were there in the first place? David and his troops are vastly outnumbered. And better than the whole victory is that they get their wives and their kids and their livestock and belongings untouched and unharmed. That in itself is miraculous. 
And on top of all that, they also got the other things that the Amalekites had amassed. So they, they got their stuff back plus a bunch of plunder. In other words, the way it worked out was better than before. Now, as David marches his troops, they come across these 200 who were too weary to join the fight. And some troublemakers from the 400 argue that they should not share in the plunder. That the 200, hey, you guys didn't risk your necks like we did. You should just get what was already yours, but none of the new stuff. And that was completely the custom in the ancient Near East, by the way. Like, that was just the normal way things worked. But David seems to be offering from a different sort of economy. He recognizes that the safe return of their families, along with the extra wealth that they captured, are not gifts they deserve, but they're gifts from God himself. And again, this attitude of being unfairly generous points to Jesus the Christ. Earlier in the service, Anne read from Matthew chapter 20, and that is the parable of the day laborers. And the, the parable tells us of the, this landowner and the day laborers and how they agreed to work for one denarius, right? That's the going rate for an average day laborer in the first century. But as the parable goes on, the story gets weirder and weirder. The landowner keeps going back to this market, like the street corner where the laborers are hanging out hoping to get work. And the workday started at six, so he hired the first batch then for denarius. And then he goes back at nine, and then he goes back at 12, and then he goes back at three, and then he goes back at 5 p.m. and gets more day laborers, and the workday is over at 6 p.m. So the foreman calls all the day laborers together, and beginning with the, the men that were hired last, he goes down the line so that these guys who, hired, who were hired at 5 p.m. and only worked one hour got a whole denarius, a day's worth of wages, and so did everybody else. And the first laborers, as you can imagine, they're grumbling and complaining under the breath about the fact that they got paid the same as those who hardly worked for just an hour. They thought they should get more money because they worked longer in the vineyard. What is the story saying to us, like, what's going on here? And I I believe, simplistically, that Jesus gives us this parable as a warning against spiritual pride. Notice that the term wages is never used in this parable. There is no sense here that we earn anything for what we do or for the time that we spend. It's pure grace that Jesus has left the vineyard in search of workers in the first place, It is pure grace that he's come in the first place to find us unemployed in God's world, and he offers us rescue. You know, there is a place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the term wages is most often used, and it's not on this parable. You know when it's used the most often is in reference to death. Death is the wage we earn for our sin. That's the message of the New Testament. So let's be careful in trying to calculate our wages with Jesus. Let's be careful in trying to convince God to be fair because God is not fair. He does not give us our wages, the wage of death. Instead, he gave himself that we might have not our wages, but the gift of life. You could say amen to that. That is good news. 
gift, gracious giving without expectation or reciprocation. Jesus is gracious and forgiving and loving, and his justice is generous. All right, let's close this out, starting in verse 26. When David reached Ziklag, he sent home, or he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, hey, here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramath, Negev, Yatir, and to those who were in Orer, and Sifmoth, and Eshtemoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jerhamelites and the Kenites, and to those in Hormah, Borashan, and Aphek, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. It's kind of a cool story and interesting, and then it just got like, what? Like a list of weird names that I can hardly say. Um, what is this weird detail about David splitting up the spoils uh, with all of these name places? Well, while David was on the run from Saul with all of these men, he, he sought refuge in lots of different towns and countryside locations. 600 men, plus livestock and plus women and children, would be a great financial burden on a hospitality culture. Hospitality rules in the ancient Near East would have made hosting David and his people uh, a norm, a social norm, like they couldn't have resisted. So David comes in, people give him food and water and, and stuff for their livestock, and it's expensive. And, and if people someday were to came, come and stay with David, he would gladly have to reciprocate their hospitality. But it is not a thing in the ancient Near East to send money or payment or payback for hospitality. That could almost be seen as um, offensive. Okay. You ever done the trick-or-treating thing where like, you know, you go down the, the dark street and all the lights are off in the house and there's the bucket of candy, full-size candy bars just sitting there like, I don't know, tempting to take the whole thing. At least that's what the teenagers did at my house this year when I went, I ducked inside just for five minutes and left the bucket out there, it was all gone. In the culture we live in, there's this enforced lie of scarcity. I feel it. You guys probably feel it too. We function as though we don't have enough. And we often live into the lie that if we don't take our advantage when it is in front of us, we'll be left out and less of a person for it. But what David shows us in this moment is extremely extraordinary generosity. And it's a foretaste of how Jesus has designed his economy in the kingdom of God. Let's consider that parable from Matthew 20 again. It's not a parable to teach us about how to be good at business. Like paying your employees, business owners, I, I'm thinking of you out there, paying your employees a full day's wages for an hour of work will put you out of business pretty quick, right? And, and not knowing how to bid your job and hire enough labor so that you're constantly like wasting time going back to the labor market five times in one day, that's, that doesn't show like very much competence, right? The parable is not about business. The parable is about the kingdom of God and the economy that operates within that kingdom, 
The kingdom of God runs on an economy of gift. And the parable is about the graciousness of God. The morning workers are grumbling that the landowner did not appear to be fair. And to them he answered and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work all day with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye evil or envious because I am good and generous? Jesus is so not fair, but he's better than fair. He's generous and gracious and full of love for you and every person you will ever meet. So let's rejoice in that. Maybe you're here this evening, and that's what you need to hear, not only in your ears, but in your heart. That you need to know that Jesus is king, and despite what seems to be going on in the world, he's got you, and he cares for you in your situation. We need to hear that part of the good news, that Jesus is not only king, but he's gracious and generous. He is being just. He is being righteous when he's being generous. For those of you and me, I'll say us, who have been following Jesus for some time now, it's also an important reminder that following Jesus means learning to be like him. Like, that's the point. The earliest followers of Jesus, before they were called Christians, were called the way. The way. They mimicked the way of Jesus. And as a church, part of us being the way is to live as though the kingdom of God were here already in its fullness. We're to live in a way that rejects the lie of scarcity. We're to be invited to believe that Jesus the King will provide more than enough for us. So I encourage us and myself to be generous like the King that we serve. Would you pray with me? Lord, we see your generosity uh, in the scriptures, you giving your very life for us, and then when people reject you, you continue to extend hospitality. You, you call your apostles and disciples, even down to this day, to reach out and, and share your love with others. And I pray that that, that information about you would would sink deep into our hearts and and that it would become transformation in us. That we might grow in our generosity and as we do to learn more and more how deep your love is for us and our neighbors. We pray these things rather than just try and do them in our own strength because it would be a miracle. So we pray for your, your powerful Holy Spirit to change the inner workings of our hearts, the thought patterns after living years of the lie that we live in a a world of scarcity and help us to see the reality that we live in a kingdom of generosity. Amen.